Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. My name is James. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Tista from the GMC. Tista, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thanks, James. Hi, great to be here. So uh, I'm Tista Chakravarti-Gannon and I head up the operations in our outreach development and support unit at the GMC. So my team work with healthcare providers and medical professionals across England, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales, providing providing people with help and advice to support safe, high quality patient care. Perfect. Thank you for coming on to the Physician Associate Podcast. As we know, in the not too distant future, the General Medical Council, the GMC, will become the statutory regulatory body for the Physician Associate profession. Whilst the work in the background continues on that and regulation should be coming soon, we all hope, I thought it'd be really good to make an episode about Physician Associates and the GMC and how professionalism plays an important part in the work of the GMC and what that might mean when GMC regulation comes in for the PA profession. Do you want to start by just sort of setting the scene of where we are in terms of regulation at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So, as you've said, we have been asked by the full government to take on regulation of physicians associates. We expect regulation will begin no earlier than summer 2023. Uh, And as part of that, the regulation will involve the title of PAs, Physicians Associates, being protected in law. Uh, It will involve us keeping a register of practising PAs and quality assuring the the education received to become a PA. And then the fourth pillar, if you will, of that is professionalism. So, yes, it's an ideal opportunity to explore that element. I think for most people listening to the podcast, we'll all have a general sort of idea about doctors being professionals and healthcare professionals and the sort of attitudes and behaviours that we would expect if we were patients ourselves being treated in the NHS. But can you define a little bit more about what professionalism is and how that is important as being part of a regulated profession? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, it was Dame Janet Smith. Uh, she's a barrister who's involved in a number of high-profile inquiries over the years. She described it in a way that I think is really succinct. Uh, she said, uh, professionalism is a basket of qualities that enables us to trust our advisors, whom- whomever they might be. Um, and uh, there's a seminal publication, if you will, on professionalism that was uh, from 2005. And that's the formal definition of professionalism that tends to be used these days. And that was from the Medical Professionalism in a Changing World report by the Royal College of Physicians. And that described professionalism as a set of values relationship set of values behaviors and relationships that underpins the trust the public has in doctors and then it breaks it down into a number of areas such as uh, qualities around integrity compassion altruism continuous improvement excellence and working in partnership with members of the wider healthcare team so that's 
kind of the accepted definition these days of professionalism. But uh, I used to teach on the history of professionalism, and actually we can go much further back than that, whether we are looking at Eastern medicine, whether we are looking at Western medicine, there are some standards that uh, uh, that are essentially professional expectations that have stood the test of time. Thinking back to Hippocrates, so one of the things that Hippocrates spoke about was uh, whatever in connection with his professional service, which should not be spoken of abroad, I will not divulge. So in normal everyday parlance, confidentiality, essentially. And I think confidentiality is a really good example of why professionalism is important and why these things often stand the test of time. So, looking at today, if a PA, if a doctor, if if a healthcare service more broadly develops, let's say, a reputation for being leaky with confidential information, then well, a number of things would happen. Patients might stop being open, but uh, at an extreme, patients might stop actually presenting. And uh, the work that I do uh, outside of my GMC work, so I work with survivors of abuse in sexual assault referral centres, that is incredibly important for us. So we're always thinking about the confidentiality of the service so that our survivors can come to us and feel as comfortable as possible. So. That, I think, is really important, but it's also important to note that elements of professionalism do change. So, there was um, uh, someone back in the 16th century, Paracelsus. He wrote about the qualifications of a good surgeon and had many sensible points in there. Again, confidentiality and things that you might expect, a, a list of edicts, that, but ones that you might expect. And I, I sometimes share that with people and people look at it and say, yes, absolutely, that resonates today, centuries on. But then I show them what he went on to say. And he went on to say some rather odd things about a surgeon mustn't be a runaway monk and mustn't have a red beard and uh, things like that. And that just demonstrates that, um, that, well, standards change and standards change to align with the social contract with the modern day world. So, uh, and perhaps we'll talk later about the um, review that we're undertaking of good medical practice, because we know that elements of that social contract evolve. So, we need to keep up to date with that. I think I might be right in remembering a time where if you were a nurse in the NHS, you couldn't have visible tattoos or piercings as part of your uniform. Yeah. And that was considered a matter of professionalism at one point, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that's right. And I, I think there are some really com interesting conversations uh, in the modern world. What does professionalism look like? What does promote public trust? And actually, there are things like this that no longer uh, undermine trust, because why would they? So, yes, we, we move on and we ensure that uh, professionalism standards move on with the world. I think it's worth perhaps stating sort of explicitly when we become a GMC regulated profession, when physician associates are GMC regulated, 
and an individual, a person, a PA is put on the GMC register, they will be committing themselves to a code of conduct or a set of professionalism rules, won't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And the GMC is obviously there for doctors at the moment. And you, you said to maintain professionalism. Are doctors seen as a respected profession, uh, profession with good professionalism? I guess I'm trying to say, is there evidence mm. to say that it works and it's... Yes. So um, there is a poll, uh, Ipsos Murray uh, undertake a poll every year where they look at trusted professions and healthcare professionals. So uh, they, they introduced nurses quite recently in the last few years in that. But prior to that, uh, the only healthcare professional in that poll were doctors. And uh, doctors have been right at the top for uh, for absolutely ages, and then nurses are uh, at the top. So, uh, so by way of evidence, our nurses, our doctors, are highly trusted individuals. Yeah, and you might want to take a guess at the professions that don't quite. Uh, meet the mark there but doctors and nurses yes absolutely so I think society holds healthcare professionals in very high regard and knowing that there are professional standards that these colleagues work to makes a big difference. I think a lens was really thrown on that issue during the Covid pandemic with with regards to the Covid vaccine wasn't it the level of misinformation and mistrust that was out there around some of the COVID vaccine. It was difficult to engage certain parts of the population in society to make sure that they were getting good healthcare advice from honest sources and from professionals. I think that's really highlighted why it's important to maintain high professional standards in in our work. Absolutely. Absolutely. What can it mean when professional standards are broken or when individuals work in a way that's not professional? I think there are a couple of things to consider. We've talked about how if you don't follow professional standards, then that can undermine the trust of the public, the confidence of the public. It can be very far-reaching depending on the gravity of the situation since time immemorial you know we have aphorisms like trust me i'm a doctor uh, that can be used flippantly at times but nonetheless it, it comes from somewhere doesn't it so uh, that that high regard can really be undermined if people stop following professional standards it's probably worth speaking a little bit as well about what it means for individual healthcare professionals as well if uh, if um, uh, professionalism isn't met, if you will. And I think one thing is that's really important to consider is that professional standards describe good practice. They aren't thresholds um, and there's no expectation that every doctor, every physician associate, every nurse, you know, is a perfect human who will never make a mistake. That's not what professional standards are about. It's about, well, we've talked about uh, the, the principles, but I understand completely that people worry about what will happen if 
for example, professional standards are professionalism standards aren't met on occasion. And when it comes comes to the way that we look at that at the GMC, we'll take action if there is a risk to patients or public confidence more broadly in medical professionals or where it's necessary to maintain those professional standards. So when a concern is raised, suggesting that our standards haven't been met, then yes, we may need to investigate. But I think it's important to go back to the point that, as I say, the the standards describe good practice rather than thresholds. And speaking about investigation, I mean, I, I speak with colleagues every day. So, as I say, I know that there can be a lot of fear and it's completely understandable that investigation um, can be stressful and uh, and people find it scary. But I really want to take this opportunity, I suppose, to provide some reassurance around that. And uh, that reassurance, two elements, one that I've already talked about, these aren't uh, the standards aren't a rule book. You will be using your professional judgment, and there's lots of support out there around meeting those professional standards. But secondly, if you know something does go wrong, then we've worked really hard to make sure that our processes are supportive. So, for example, if um, there are investigations around health issues that have met a threshold around fitness to practice. We look at how we can support colleagues to continue practicing safely because our goal is not to remove people from the register. Our goal is Let's say that there are challenges with uh, someone's a particular area of someone's practice or um, such significant health issues that they are struggling. Then our goal is to work with them until that area of practice can be improved or their health improves so that they can stay on the register. So that's kind of the approach we take. And I guess by way of final reassurance, I know that there are many myriad myths about um, uh, about fitness to practice, but the actual picture is quite different. Sometimes uh, my team and I will be in a room uh, with doctors who will think that people are being um, struck off in high numbers all the time, but we only take forward a tiny fraction of complaints that are made to us. Uh, and, And that's because there may be a complaint and it may be that there is learning from that complaint. However, that does not necessarily mean that that individual is not fit to practice. There's a significant distinction there. So, uh, like I say, we take forward a tiny proportion of those complaints and um, looking at the register, only, uh, well, less than 12% of doctors have ever had a complaint raised about them to the GMC in the first place. And then less than 1% have faced warnings or sanctions as a result of that. So, um, I hope that provides some reassurance around what might happen uh, on those occasions that standards aren't met. Sister, can I ask you to clarify the GMC will become the regulatory body for my professional work, my work as a physician associate, my career. Are standards of professionalism applied to my non-work 
life as well. In I'm thinking if a PA gets a speeding ticket or if a PA gets in trouble with the police in another way of what constitutes professionalism outside and away from work? So uh, that's a really, really good question. And it's something that we get asked frequently by doctors uh, as it stands. So professionalism, if we go back to the definitions uh, that we were talking about and go back to thinking about trust in a profession. There are some things that could happen in uh, outside of your professional life, in your personal life, that may undermine trust in a profession that may affect public confidence. And uh, therefore, yes, professionalism standards do apply more broadly. Now, um, I think a really good thing to explore there might be social media, because that's where we get a lot of queries. So, when, uh, and this, you know, I, I think about this as well. So, I'm on social media. Um, these days, I work for the GMC as well. And uh, I'm always conscious that I am uh, being me on social media and I am also representing the GMC on social media, albeit it's not a corporate account. It is my personal account that I've had since time memorial. Uh, and, and in the same way, whatever profession you are, that what you're talking about may affect the perceptions of that that profession. And you do um, sometimes see how um, uh, how uh, certain behaviours, even though you think, well, I'm not in, you know, I'm not in my hospital now. I am speaking about something on social media or wherever. Um, the behaviour, if it is, you know, uh, really egregious that can impact how people will perceive you and your profession more widely so that is something to be mindful of yeah it must be a minefield doesn't it when you think back to people who might have posted something on twitter or on social media 10 years ago but long yeah. before they became a healthcare professional and yeah. whether that could get dragged up and cause issues these days yeah, yeah, there are some really in uh, interesting conversations about that uh, these days, aren't there? We've, we've seen so many examples, um, uh, not not um, in medicine, let's say, but in high-profile celebrities, etc., where that's been, yeah, a real challenge. Mm. Shall we talk about where we are at the moment for physician associates and where the GMC is in terms of the standards that are in place? that physician associates should be aware of at the moment and how that will evolve over time when we become regulated? Yeah, absolutely. So we have interim standards for uh, PAs at the moment and um, that we, we've done a lot of work to develop those interim standards. The idea is that um, once we... Um, we have regulation for PAs. Those interim standards are what will be used up until the point where there is that revised version that I mentioned of good medical practice. Uh, and once that comes into effect, that will apply to PAs, AAs and doctors all 
uh, the professions that we regulate. But as I say, it, until then, we will have interim standards. Now, with the interim standards, uh, many of your listeners might have been involved uh, in the development of those standards. So we ran a survey to learn more about the reflections and experiences of working as or with uh, a PA or an AA, because we really wanted to well, we really wanted to understand those experiences and we wanted as well to particularly explore views on things like dele- delegation and supervision, scope of practice was another area, multi-professional team working, and also patient awareness of PA and AA roles as well. So we ran that survey and received uh, over a thousand responses to that, which was brilliant. And then we ran focus groups as well to really delve into uh, what that meant. And uh, we, and in those focus groups, we heard from physician associates, we heard from AAs, and we heard from doctors as well. And you can find a write-up of all of that on our website. But some of the things I think worth drawing out today, that work demonstrated that, well, we don't think that PAs and AAs need any additional special guidance. And that's why, as I say, good medical practice, uh, the revised version will apply to all because the same principles apply in our existed that apply in our guidance for doctors. Well, very much it makes sense. Uh, that it applies to PAs as well. We did um, uh, we did find that there there needs to be some extra clarity around what supervision is and how scope of practice is communicated as well. So that's an important area to reflect on. And with all of that, what we've landed on is that adaptation of good medical practice as interim standards for physician associates and anaesthesia associates to help people bring that to life as well for them. We've got case studies and they are on the website and those case studies are there to help you, help your listeners and also for supervisors. So, for example, a doctor who might be supervising a PA. As I say, that's all available on our website, the standards themselves, the work that's gone into the development, but also those case studies to help bring it to life as well. Thank you, Tista. Thank you for explaining all of that. I'm sure it's been really useful just to understand where we are at the moment. So the GMC have published these interim standards for physician associates ahead of time. Mm -hmm. They're not yet legally enforceable, are they, until we become GMC regulated? That's right. Yes. And uh, it's good to clarify that. So they are not currently uh, enforceable. We thought it would be a good idea to publish them ahead of time to, well, help people become familiar with them. Talking about PAs, I'm talking about AAs, but also I'm talking about employers to understand them, get used to them. And also, given that we are now in the review period for good medical practice, a consultation period, it's really helpful if people can have an understanding of those interim standards to help them feed into the review of good medical practice to um, uh, to help shape that as well. It's hoped, I guess, that when physician associates are more established and when we're GMC regulated, that the public will think 
of physician associates in the same terms as doctors in as much as the PA profession will be as highly trusted, highly regarded, yeah. well thought of as, as those standards of the doctors. It makes sense that we're all held to the same high bar. Yeah, exactly. The document known as good medical practice is the sort of code of conduct for professionalism for doctors at the moment, isn't it? It's the document. Good medical practice is the thing that doctors are held to as an account. Yes. And that's under review now, isn't it? That the GMC yeah. are taking on PAs and AAs. Do you want to touch yeah. on, on good medical practice as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, good medical practice. We first published good medical practice in uh, 1995. And there have been versions since then, of course, as I was saying, as, uh, as standards evolve. Um, so uh, we have a version of good medical practice now that was published in 2013. So the time is right for that review. And uh, at, it was the end of April that we launched a consultation on an updated version. And good medical practice, very much like the interim standards for PAs and AAs, it's a it's a set of high-level principles that can be applied flexibly across the complexity that we have, the variation that we have in our high-demand systems um, that, that uh, colleagues work in. It's designed, as I've said, not as a rule book, but uh, as a helpful, supportive document to help you navigate professional and ethical challenges that you face throughout your careers. So, uh, good medical practice takes account of the uh, the relevant legislation. Um, it takes account of the wider ethical framework, and it puts that into a more digestible document for you around uh, around professionalism. So that's what good medical practice is. Uh, and as I say, we are currently on the 2013 version, uh, hence the need for the review that launched in April. And from, you know, from, from our point of view, We'd really, really like to hear from many more uh, PAs before the consultation. It closes on the 20th of July. So it's a really good time um, for, for your listeners to get involved in that because um, the, the guidance is going to apply to PAs. Uh, and we need to make sure that the new guidance is supportive Good medical practice has to be a shared agreement between professionals and patients on what is needed to deliver safe and compassionate care. As we've been undertaking the review of the guidance, so we've done you know, desk research, focus groups, uh, a, a load of work before developing the draft that we have now that is out for consultation. And throughout that, we've been focusing on making sure that the principles are relevant to all roles that we'll re regulate in the future. So, in the consultation, your listeners will have that opportunity to tell us how this would work for them as PAs. So, uh, so yes, I really, really encourage people to have a look at getting involved in that. And if it's useful, I can maybe chat through some of the 
um, some of the main proposals, main changes, if you think that would be helpful for um, listeners to hear, James. Please do. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So as we've said a number of times today, the social contract evolves. And there are some themes that I think will be uh, particularly of interest to PAs. And one of the things that we were thinking about more broadly is that uh, in recent years, a lot has changed about care. Healthcare inequalities have become even more widespread, and there are a number of issues that are rightly on people's minds. So, a few themes that I think will be, as I say, of of particular interest. The new guidance places even greater focus on behaviours between colleagues and interactions with patients which are compassionate, civil, inclusive and fair. We've also really emphasised the importance of supporting you to develop leadership skills appropriate to your role. And we've highlighted as well the need to show respect for the skills of all colleagues and listen to their contributions within the healthcare team. So breaking that down, we've got four key themes. One is tackling discrimination and promoting fairness and inclusion. So we've introduced explicit duty not to abuse, discriminate against, bully, exploit or harass anyone or condone those behaviours by others. And we've really strengthened what our guidance says about uh, sexual harassment, for example, between colleagues. Another theme is working in partnership with patients. So we've emphasised the responsibility of medical professionals to help patients make decisions for themselves. Now, we've spoken about that in uh, one of our uh, other pieces of guidance, uh, decision making and consent. But we felt that that was so important. We've brought it into good medical practice. So that now has a new duty to find out what matters to patients so that that can guide discussions about their care and treatment options. Another theme is working effectively with colleagues. So we've highlighted that need to show respect for the skills, as I say, of all colleagues and listen to their contributions. And finally, uh, another key theme is leadership and organisational culture. There's been so much talk uh, and work on culture in um, in healthcare over the years, and we've added a new duty to encourage medical professionals to develop leadership skills, to contribute to improved cultures, for example. So there are some of the main themes that we're consulting on. Uh, There are a number of elements there that I think will be of particular interest to your listeners. So I really encourage people to get involved. Uh, We have a short survey uh, that's on the website and we are running a number of events as well. So however people want to get involved, they can do. And if it's helpful as well, there are certificates available for your portfolio for taking part in either a survey or an event. So there are lots of ways to get involved. Thank you, Tista. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to explain a little bit more about professionalism and the standards and what that's going to mean for the physician associate profession um, once GMC regulation is in force.
I'll leave a link to the consultation on good medical practice that we've been talking about in the show notes um, so people can look on their devices and find a link to take them through and to give their feedback on good medical practice there. And I know that you've said if people have questions, having listened to this episode, it might have sparked off some ideas or they might want to talk to the GMC about the standards if they want to get in touch with anything that we've discussed about today, that there is this email address that people can um, get in touch with you on. So it's standards at gmc-uk.org and i'll leave that in the show notes as well so people can find it there for you again thank you so much for joining me on the episode thank you very much james it's been uh, an absolute pleasure thank you for having having me on and thanks to you for listening as well i hope that was a really useful episode for you to listen to to find out a bit more about professionalism and how the pa profession is going to evolve under the gmc if you've got ideas for future episodes of the physician associate podcast i would love to hear from you Get in touch via social media on PA Podcast UK, on Facebook, on Twitter and Instagram. And I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Physician Associate Podcast.